Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 2nd, 2021. Hello once again, and welcome, or welcome back, as the case may be, to Foreign Exchanges. Thanks, as always, for checking out the show. If you're new to Foreign Exchanges, uh, I like to do this pitch up front every time. Uh, If you're new to Foreign Exchanges uh, and you like this interview, why don't you uh, please, I invite you to come check out uh, the Foreign Exchanges newsletter at Substack, fx.substack.com. Sign up for our free email list. You'll get uh, regular roundups of world news and international affairs and analysis of U.S. foreign policy uh, delivered right to your inbox, uh, including more podcasts like this one. Um, If you are a repeat uh, (laughs) visitor to Foreign Exchanges, uh, thanks as always for for coming back. It's great to have you. Uh, I am uh, excited today or this week, I guess, to bring you uh, the returning champion of Foreign Exchanges podcast appearances, Alex Thurston, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati and a Foreign Exchanges contributor uh, in his own right. He's got uh, two columns up on the site now and and more to come undoubtedly um alex is here because there has been a fair amount of recent news out of the sahel uh which is uh, the region that he spends most of his time uh writing about thinking about uh covering uh, essentially um as you uh, probably know as you probably have heard uh, the f- well, I was gonna. I was about to say founder of Boko Haram. He's not actually the founder. He was not actually the founder of Boko Haram, uh, but a key figure in its rise and its kind of turn toward violence. Uh, Abu Bakr Shekau, one of the most notorious figures in Sahelian uh, jihadism and certainly in Nigeria <laughs> in recent Nigerian history, uh, is probably dead. Uh, I don't want to commit entirely to this uh, because uh, he's been declared dead in the past, but as uh, Alex will uh, discuss when I get him on the line, uh, this uh, this time seems a little bit different. There are reports that he was killed or uh, perhaps killed himself in the midst of a clash between his fight, a group of his fighters, and a group of uh, Islamic State West Africa province fighters in the Sambisa Forest, which is sort of the uh, home turf for Shikau's Boko Haram or his branch of Boko Haram. These are two organizations that kind of split off of the same route uh, in 2016. Um, So we'll talk about Shikau with Alex. We'll talk about his, uh, who he is or was, um, what role he played in uh, sort of Boko Haram's rise and its development. Uh, his kind of notorious reputation, even by uh, sort of jihadi militant standards, uh, his notorious reputation for violence. Um, and we'll talk about his apparent death and what it means for uh, the conflict between uh, sort of the original Boko Haram, Boko Haram classic, if you want to call it that, uh, and Iswap, the Islamic State West Africa province, uh, in northeastern Nigeria, which certainly seems at this point to have been all but won uh, by Iswap. Uh, We'll talk about what that means for Nigeria, uh, what the Nigerian government is prepared to do or not do, as the case may be, uh, in terms of dealing with Iswap. Uh, And uh, we'll go from there to kind of talk about some other news uh, in the region, because uh, uh, Shikau's apparent death is not the only recent story. Um, certainly there is a plethora uh, of, there are a plethora of stories in Nigeria itself. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the overall security situation, especially the uh, escalation in relatively sophisticated uh, attacks, mass kidnappings, uh, violence in Northwest Western Nigeria, uh, conducted by groups that the Nigerian government kind of throws up its hands and calls bandits, uh, which suggests it doesn't even uh, may not even have a good may not have a good handle on exactly who is involved, and it's just sort of attributing these things to um, you know faceless, nameless. 
uh, uh, bandit gangs uh, that uh, you know have no organization, despite the apparent the uh, the obvious kind of level of sophistication uh, involved in some of these attacks. We'll talk about um, you know we'll we'll touch on a few of the other things that are going on in Nigeria, the the ongoing violence between farming and herding communities across the central uh, part of Nigeria, and the recent rise in in attacks by probably by Afrin uh, separatists uh, in southeastern Nigeria. Uh, and then we're going to move on toward the end of the interview to talk a little bit about uh, the events of the past couple of weeks in Mali. Uh, we will discuss the coup uh, within a coup that took place last month, the self-coup carried out by the same military junta that uh, carried out its first coup back in August uh, to overthrow the transitional government that it had set in place. Uh, the uh, the new transitional government, if you will, is is now being run directly by uh, Asimi Goita, colonel in the uh, Malian military, Malian army, uh, who had led the junta, had been leading the hunter this whole time, but it had kind of taken a back seat, at least on paper, as vice president uh, during the initial transition. He was clearly dissatisfied with how that transition was going, and uh, apparently with the lack of oversight that the civilian portion of the transitional government was was allowing the military to have. Uh, so he kind of erased the board again and started over with himself uh, in power now as president, which has, of course, a lot of implications in terms of uh, what government is actually going to emerge from this period. There's Mali supposed to hold elections uh, next year. Um, it, they will probably be uh, conducted under a system that rigs the the is rigged to ensure that the military retains power. But we'll talk about all these things uh, with Alex. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm you know very excited to have Alex on. He's uh, written a couple of books you may want to check out. Most recently, uh, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, which is something we talked about on this program uh, a few months ago. Um, he also has written a book on Boko Haram. As I you know, uh, I don't know anybody else who's written a book on Boko. Haram. I mean, I know there are people who have written books on Boko Haram, but I don't know any of them. Uh, myself. Uh, so he has the distinction of being the only person I know who's written a book. Uh, it's called Boko Haram, The History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, so I'll have links to both of those in the show description. And he's also written a piece uh, on Shekau's apparent death uh, for the blog Lawfare. Uh, it's titled, If Boko Haram's Leader is Dead, What's Next for Northeastern Nigeria? Uh, I'll ha also have a link to that. Uh, piece in the show description. Uh, so yeah, very excited to have Alex on to talk about this stuff and uh, to uh, uh, you know extend his uh, record streak of foreign exchanges appearances. Uh, so with that all said, uh, let me get him on the Zoom here and we'll get going. All right, as promised in the introduction, I'm being joined once again by returning uh, champion Alex Thurston. Uh, Alex is uh, assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati uh, and a foreign exchanges contributor. Uh, he just wrote his uh, second piece for the newsletter recently, so you, you should check that out. Uh, but that's not why we're here. That's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, we're here because uh, he has actually written a book on Boko Haram. You're the only person, Alex, I know who's written a book on Boko Haram. Uh, it's called Boko Haram, the History of an African Jihadist Movement. Uh, he also has a more recent book called Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel. Uh, we'll have links to both of those in the show description. And he has written uh, just, I think, uh, came out today or yesterday, no, over the weekend, sorry, uh, a column for Lawfare uh, titled, If Boko Haram's Leader is Dead, What's Next for Northeastern Nigeria? Uh, Alex, thank you for coming back again to, to do the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be on the podcast. Uh, so I gave away the topic there with uh, by by telling people the the title of your lawfare column. Uh, the leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakr Shekau, uh, is probably dead. I guess I don't know. Uh, the, this uh, word broke. Uh, I think May twentieth or twenty first uh, that he had been 
killed or committed suicide in battle uh, between uh, Boko Haram fighters and uh, Islamic State West Africa province fighters uh, in Sambisa Forest, which is sort of Boko Haram's um, backyard or has been since uh, those two organizations broke off from one another. Uh, first of all, I guess, um, it, do you really think that Shikau is dead? This is, of course, not the first time that he has been uh, deemed uh, to no longer be among us, and yet uh, he's survived every time. Do you think this is different, and why? Why do you think it's different? I do think it's different, and I think he's. I think he's probably dead. I mean, it's you know, it's it's tricky. I mean, in in 2018, I want to say in Mali, the government of France proclaimed that that Amadou Koufa, one of the top jihadist leaders in Mali, had been killed, and then he resurfaced about four months later. You know, and so I mean, governments and, and news sources are very familiar with calling these things wrong, and and it can be a big. Yeah, I mean, it's not just Shikau. I mean, this is a common. Happen. I mean, Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar has been yeah. dead like eight times. I mean, he's probably dead now, but uh, he was killed multiple times before, you know, uh, he actually seems to have disappeared. So it's it's a common thing for jihadist leaders to, to sort of have these uh, false death reports over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. Bel Mokhtar, you know, was probably killed in 2016, but people, including me, continue to hedge a bit whenever he comes up. And Shakao, you know, the, the theories about Shakao were particularly wild. I mean, there was a there was a theory a couple of years ago that he had been killed and replaced with a body double and really sort of <laughs> stuff, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this time, though, you know, I mean, the New York Times said, you know, it feels different. Right. You know, a lot of people have been willing to confirm it. It seems that Iswap, which you mentioned, the, the rival faction, you know, is, is publicly acting as though he was killed. Um, you know, he would probably be the first to pop up and say, hey, I'm I'm still alive. Haha, <laughs> you know, if if he were really alive. So I mean, yeah, I think I would put chances at 95% now that he's actually dead. It feels like Shikau is is another in this sort of uh, line of kind of the uh, OG, kind of you know, the old time group of jihadist leaders i don't want to trivialize but um you know there there are there have been a lot of them that seem to be um seem to be dying recently i mean you were on the show just a few months ago to talk about abdomenic drukdal mm -hmm. uh the the longtime leader of aqim um you know and and there are there are others i mean there's been sort of i mean bin laden is sort of the big the big one and uh, um you know zarqawi you know was uh, many years ago obviously but it seems like uh, you know, steadily, all these guys are being replaced by kind of a new generation. Um, Shikau, let's let's talk about Shikau. And some of this will be uh, a bit of a review for people who have uh, listened to the entire Alex Thurston foreign exchanges uh, <laughs> collection <laughs> collection of podcasts because we did an episode. Group, <laughs> If you go into the back catalog, we've done, I mean, we did an episode on Boko Haram. Uh, so some of this will be reviewed, but talk about Shikau. I mean, Shikau is not the founder of Boko Haram as such, but he's an instrumental figure in its sort of rise to uh, prominence and its its turn really to toward more kind of violent uh, militancy and, and away from just being sort of a, a kind of reformist or, or religious movement. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing that's striking about him is how little really outsiders know or even insiders know about him. You know, one of the other, as you know, right, you mentioned Druktel, um, AQIM, we, we mentioned Belmokhtar, you know, leaders like that, leaders of AQIM, they, they would go on the record, at least with jihadist publications, and they would do pretty extensive biographical interviews you know we know the the years that they were born we know something about the arc of their lives but Shakao, it's a lot sketchier so you know he was probably born sometime in the 60s or 70s he his name you know actually refers to the village where he's from so Shakao village in yobe state which is the most rural state in nigeria you know far northeastern part of the country he seems to have come to Maiduguri, the capital of Borno State, you know, biggest city in northeastern Nigeria. He seems to have come there as a young man, you know, by the by the 1990s or even earlier. 
had some education, so some Quranic education, and then enrolled at this Islamic studies college in, in Maiduguri, but didn't finish, possibly because of already, you know, ideological differences with some of the teachers there. And then at some point, probably in the 2000s, he linked up with Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram. And you can see him, Shakao, you know, in some of the Boko Haram videos from probably dating from the late 2000s, you know, then a sort of wiry guy, but but recognizable, you know, in, in this sort of um, animated or even kind of bombastic uh, style, you know, apparently very entertaining and charismatic in a way. And then by the time Boko Haram had this uprising, you know, sort of riot in 2009, he was a key figure. So Muhammad Yusuf, the founder, was captured by police and was interrogated. And in the interrogation and in the transcript, they ask him, you know, who's who's your deputy? And so he says Shakao. And so Shakao seemed to have already by 2009 this kind of defined place in the organization. In 2009, then, the, you know, this uprising was crushed. Yusuf was executed by police. And then the remnants of the group, you know, at least those who wish to keep fighting, regrouped under Shakao. And Shakao, you know, um, I mean, not in a not in any kind of you know praising way, but I think in you know just in sort of a strategic sense. I mean, I think he gets a bit of he gets substantial credit for kind of you know reorganizing the group and and turning it into this extremely tenacious underground force that that you know has um, waxed and waned, but that has been impossible for the Nigerian military to decisively defeat. And so, and during, you know, especially from about 2010 until early 2015, he, he more or less led Boko Haram on a pretty, you know, upward and, and at times just dramatic trajectory, peaking in 2014-2015 when they overtly controlled territory in, you know, Borno State, Yobe State, Adamawa State, you know, significant chunks of northeastern Nigeria. Then they were pushed back in early 2015 by, especially by the militaries of Chad and Niger, but also by the Nigerian military and by South African mercenaries and so forth. Since then, you know, he, he was in more of a sort of survival slash terrorist mode. And you, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier. He, he had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State in early 2015. And then there was a breakaway group now called ISWAP broke off in, in summer 2016 and took the Islamic State moniker and, and support and whatever with them. So since that time, since summer 2016, he was in command of the smaller faction, but still just a, a tenacious, tenacious figure and somebody who appears to have only been taken out by by rival jihadists, you know, not not ever taken out by the Nigerian military itself. Shakao has the um, distinction, I guess, uh, of being really too violent for both al-Qaeda and the Islamic State on some level, right? I, he, uh, he's been, he's had groups splinter off from Boko Haram. There was Ansaru, which broke away in, I think, 2012, kind of to uh, adopt the al-Qaeda mantle more overtly. I mean, there had been some kind of interaction between Shikau uh, and AQIM, but uh, Ansaro broke away. Really, I mean, you know, kind of saying, "Look, this guy's like too violent. He's targeting everyday people, and we want to really kind of, uh, you know, direct our focus toward the big enemies, the 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 great kind of uh, enemies of our movement, and not, you know, kill a bunch of civilians." Um, and there was some talk in, in 2016 when uh, the Islamic State kind of central office announced that Shikau was being replaced. Uh, there was some talk that part of it was because uh, it couldn't tolerate, even the Islamic State couldn't tolerate kind of the level of violence that he was visiting on um, ordinary people. Can you talk a little bit about um, his reputation in that regard and uh what happened you know to to cause these breaks especially i think uh and sorrow is is one that uh you know they're not really that active anymore or active at all except for the, the occasional mention so people may not be familiar with them yeah so during during the lifetime of muhammad yusuf well it, it depends i mean the, the you know uh, adjudicating all this can be can be contentious. There there appear to have been you know some Nigerians who were interested, some northeastern Nigerians who were interested in global jihad even back to the the 1990s. 
um, during the time of Muhammad Yusuf, there were people in Boko Haram's orbit who had fought with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM. Uh, and, and Yusuf himself seems to have had, you know, pretty tenuous links to, to the global jihad, if, if anything, you know, never appears to have corresponded with bin Laden or anything like that. Seems to have been reading, you know, global jihadist literature, especially Abu Muhammad al-Maqdisi, one of the key um, AQ ideologues. But Yusuf, you know, was, was, I think, mostly sort of a homegrown phenomenon. Shakao then in 2009 almost immediately, you know, kind of drawing on these connections of people who had been in, in Boko Haram's orbit, uh, Shakao reached out to AQIM and reached out to Al-Qaeda Central and sort of offered himself up as a potential partner to them. And AQIM took him up on that, um, sending, you know, at least one transfer of something like 200,000 euros, um, training some unspecified number of, of fighters, and then, you know, having these kind of liaisons of, of people who are known to both sides. But as you say, you know, pretty quickly, so by by 2011, there were some serious rifts within Boko Haram and, and the nucleus of what became um, Ansar al-Muslimin, Kibilat al-Sudan, or, or Ansaru, so this um, group, you know, they called itself the, the defenders of Muslims in the lands of the blacks, right? And the lands of the, this Bilad al-Sudan is like a, it's a, it's a, a you know, a centuries old name for, for kind of that region of, of Africa. Um, so this group Ansaru, you know, or Ansaru Muslimin broke away then officially in early 2012. And yeah, the, the key points of, you know, uh, dispute seemed to have to do with, or definitely had to do with Shakao's willingness to use violence against a broad spectrum of targets. So not just state security forces, not just sort of open critics of Boko Haram, but also ordinary Muslim civilians. And, and this was kind of the recurring issue. And, and Shakao eventually went very, very far down the path theologically of, of arguing that almost anybody who uh, anybody who disagreed with Boko Haram or wasn't willing to actively support Boko Haram ended up being an unbeliever, either that they had apostatized or even that they had never been a believer to begin with, you know, and so, and then on the basis of that, you know, making the argument that um, sort of the, the blood of any Muslim outside his group was licit for him to take, um, and that had economic implications as well. And there's a big debate about jihadists in general, you know, or especially about people like Shakao. Is this all ideological belief? Is this sort of just a pretext for, you know, hunger for power and capriciousness and so forth? It's it's hard to it's hard to settle. You know, in in videos and propaganda, Shakao would sometimes come across as super crazy and bloodthirsty, and I think he cultivated that image. You know, there's some reports of of people who met him who say no, behind the scenes he was he was you know, a bit more calmer and, and that this was kind of a performance that he staged. But in any case, the, the the willingness to kill people outside the group, but also within the group, if they disagreed with him, that that seems to have been very real. So Ansaru or Ansaru Muslimin broke off in 2012. As you say, you know, they, they seemed to fizzle out. They had some kidnappings that had been attributed to them, some kind of terrorist attacks. They wanted to kind of refocus on yeah, you know, big targets, Westerners, the Nigerian government, et cetera. But they they did not take the mass of fighters with them. You know, Shakao, despite being this really, you know, violent guy, capricious guy, retained the loyalty of a lot of the key, you know, commanders, foot soldiers and so forth during, during 2012. And then Ansaru, you know, as kind of this roving terrorist unit fizzled out. And now you get you know, various reports and rumors saying that Ansaru is like linking up with bandits in northwestern Nigeria, etc. Um, I'm sort of a skeptic of that, right? Because sometimes that seems to cut both ways. If if Ansaru claims an attack, then people are like, oh, look, Ansaru's on the rise, it's coming back. If it doesn't claim attacks, then people are like, oh, it's clever, it's gone underground, it's working with bandits. So it kind of feels like, you know, uh, people will attribute massive power to them no matter what they do or don't do. And then all the same issues about killing Muslim civilians and, and declaring them unbelievers came up again during the split with, with you know, what became a swap in 2015, 2016. The difference seems to have been that, first of all, that the dissidents at that time had more internal support. They were able to convince more sort of commanders and foot soldiers to defect with them, and they eventually became the larger group. And then also they, you know, they, they I guess, benefited, you could say, from the desperate circumstances of the group. I mean, the, there's one book basically that Iswap put out that talks about them, you know, eating, you know, basically the, the bark off of trees and things at, at a low point in, 
you know, 2015, 2016, uh, they had lost all this territory, et cetera. And so uh, I think, you know, but it took, I mean, one striking thing is just how long it took for some of the people around Chicago to feel that, that his approach was a dead end. And then even when Iswap split there, you know, for a long time, there's been this estimate and it's pretty, pretty crude and out of date now, but saying that, that Iswap had something like 3,500 fighters and Boko Haram had something like 1,500 for Chacao, you know, despite being bloodthirsty and super extreme for him to retain the loyalty of that many fighters says something, I think about, you know, the, the loyalty that he had and, um, yeah, the willingness of, of a substantial contingent to stick with him until the bitter end. When the split happened in 2016, um, Iswap kind of located itself and still locates itself primarily in the Lake Chad region. And, and they're, you know, they've made themselves sort of a regional problem for uh, Chad and Niger and, and you know, uh, which, which Boko Haram had been, but they sort of, uh, you know, lost a lot of their capacity in the split. Um, and Shikau's faction... Uh, was largely kind of centered in the Sambisa forest in Borno State. Uh, and, you know, I mean, seemed to be, you know, at times there would be, you'd see flurries of activity. I always got lost uh, in, in the reporting because sometimes I feel like uh, Western outlets just call the whole thing Boko Haram still, and and, and like I've only recently, really, uh, relatively recently, started to make a clear distinction between the two groups. So it's been hard to track, and and I think you know some of your research suggests, uh, and, and you've said before on the program, th there may at the ground level not necessarily be a hard dividing line between these two groups in some cases, um, but the fact that. Um, Shikau met his end apparently uh, in a battle in the Sambisa forest in Boko Haram's kind of playground or in its backyard. Uh, does this suggest to you that the rivalry that existed between uh, Boko Haram and ISWAP is is over, or that um, you know there this is all going to kind of come together again under the ISWAP banner, or do you feel like there's still a, a uh, a future for Shikau's faction. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just to respond to like some of what you said, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, you know, a lot of the international reporting will call things Boko Haram when, when the violence is committed, you know, by either faction and even, you know, the, the Boko Haram name is not what the group ever really called itself, you know, um, Shikau's faction has called itself, you know, basically the, the, the Sunni group for, for preaching and jihad or something like that, you know, or even the Salafi group for preaching and jihad. Um, and, and people often abbreviate the Arabic for that as, as just JAS. Um, and yeah, and, and then when you get to, you know, even some of the best, you know, trackers, monitors in the world, you know, ACLED, the, the armed uh, conflict location event data, you know, database and, and the Nigeria security tracker, the Council on Foreign Relations. I mean, they, you know, the, those those uh, aggregators databases are based on, you know, heavily on media reporting. Right. So, you know, actually the, the, the foundations of some of what they say is arguably a little bit shaky. I mean, they do they do the best they can, but still. Um, you know, there's just a lot that's not known. And a lot of the reporting is pretty crude. The Nigerian military obfuscates um, investigative journalism in the Northeast is weak. So it's sometimes hard. And, and this made it, you know, tricky to assess the kind of relations between the two groups. Sometimes you get reports of clashes, reports of accommodation, you know, and so forth. Now, though, to, I mean, to, to speak more directly to your question, um, it's hard to see a future for Shikau's faction. I mean, apparently there were some, you know, dead enders and, and according to the report, some of which are a little more than rumors, you know, Iswap has been trying to clean house and offering people sort of the choice of like join or die. Uh, it's hard to see somebody emerging to carry on Shikau's mantle, um, but possible, you know, possible there could be a video tomorrow with somebody, you know, unknown to, to, you know, most Outside could be a video but... tomorrow with Shikau in it. We don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. I mean, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, some of the names, some of the names that are most like dreaded and feared today. I mean, again, like Amadou Kufa in in Mali. You know, very very few people outside of Central Mali had heard of Amadou Kufa before. You know, before 2012, 2013, right? So it's you know, it's possible that there are figures waiting in the wings. 
Um, but if Shikau already had the, the smaller slice of the pie, you know, if his personality seems to have been a key factor in, in you know, his faction lasting, um, if Iswap has been killing, you know, the sort of second level of his organization, then yeah, I'm having a hard time seeing how, you know, so-called JAS like bounces back. Assuming, I mean, assuming then that that Islamic State is now the going to kind of assume the full mantle of uh, jihadist violence in northeastern Nigeria. You write in in your uh, lawfare piece that there's a sort of level of activity um, by both of these groups, but now maybe just the one uh, that Nigerian authorities are kind of willing to tolerate. Uh, to, up to a point, and and you talk about this, you know, sort of uh, upper bound on on how far ISWAP can go uh, or can be allowed to go or would be allowed to go before uh, a real kind of uh, heavy backlash is going to kick in. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, now that it's presumably removed uh, this competing group, what 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 does the future? um hold in some sense for for iswap right yeah and so i mean yeah one could say on the one hand okay you know iswap seems to be ready to kind of eliminate all all but the the dead enders of this rival faction and so they can pivot now from fighting you know a, a two-front war to a one-front war and that they can then concentrate on kind of encircling my the state capital of, of borno state and and you know really um potentially building a territorial enclave again. But then on the other hand, I think they, you know, I think there is a learning process. And if you, if you take territory and hold territory, especially urban territory, you can make yourself into kind of a sitting duck. Um, And there is, I think, a ceiling, as you say, you know, where some power will intervene, you know, be it, be it the way that, you know, United States and others mobilize a coalition against against Islamic State, you know, core in, in Iraq and Syria, or be it the way that that Chad and Niger intervened in, in northeastern Nigeria in 2015, or, or France and Mali in 2013. I mean, there will come a tipping point. I think it's sort of, you know, determined in an ad hoc and kind of subjective way. But but any jihadist insurgency can hit, you know, can, can sort of trip a wire where somebody more powerful than them will intervene to crush them. And I think they're starting to to realize that and and to and to think about that. And so I don't want to sound conspiratorial. I mean, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories saying that, you know, that that successive Nigerian governments have ginned up Boko Haram, or that they, you know, that that um that Boko Haram is kind of a puppet that's controlled by Nigerian elites. I, I'm not sure that it's that it's that. I think it, you know, and I, and I reject those sort of conspiracy theories. I, I think it's more that. Yeah, as I was trying to say in the piece, and as you said in your question, that there's this kind of equilibrium and that that the costs for the Nigerian military and the Nigerian authorities of, of trying to completely root out and crush Iswap, Boko Haram, whatever, in, in rural areas, that those costs are simply not ones that they're willing to, to meet. And I do think, and I don't think one has to be a conspiracy theorist to say this, I do think that there's that there's serious issue with with corruption and the security budgets and so forth. I'm sure that money is being skimmed off the top. Um, so I think then that creates this kind of equilibrium. Like, do do Nigerian authorities want ISWAP in the countryside? No. You know, do they wish that they were defeated? Yeah, I think so. You know, but but are they really going to try to you know comb through what's really a large territory and kill people? And I think they also don't. I think they also must realize at some basic level that. You know, often the process of killing people amounts to a kind of collective punishment that can that can actually, you know, boost the ranks of the jihadists, or at the very least, can make it very very difficult to to get you know any information or cooperation out of civilians. So yeah, I think that leaves this this equilibrium. If Iswap moved on Maiduguri or tried to reconstruct what Boko Haram had in 2014 2015, I think they would get crushed. But I think as long as they fall short of that, then the top Nigerian military and civilian actors can can live with the situation as it is now. I think I mean, one of the points you make in the piece, which is uh, I think speaks to this, is, is the simple simply the fact that Chacal, um, assuming again that he's dead, was killed by Iswab. He was killed by other jihadists. He was not killed by the Nigerian government. It speaks to the fact that and it, and you know corruption is a problem 
um, for sure. And there, there is probably some, you know, slack in the, um, what the Nigerian government will tolerate. Um, but it's also really difficult for, I mean, yes. Uh, yes. for, for any government and the United yes. States has struggled with this, uh, right. to actually take these groups on until, uh, they progress to the point where they make what, you know, clearly at this point seems to be the mistake, uh, of kind of, planting a flag somewhere and saying this is right. ours and that's when you know you can really bring uh, the full weight of of a response a military response to bear it's sort of a i mean it's a, a kind of paradox that these groups ultimately to to kind of achieve the aims the ideological aims that they set out there has to be at some point a territory that is taken and that becomes a, a the core of a a, a state almost uh, but that's also the thing that, like, you know, gets you killed. Basically, I mean, that's that's where uh, you you push things too far, and and you you're you're in trouble. Yeah, and I think I mean it's interesting, like with some of the you know with ISWAP or with with some of the groups in in Mali, they seem to come, you know, I don't know. I guess I would say like almost to the threshold of statehood, you know. So apparently. I haven't had a chance to read it word for word, but in some of the latest uh, Islamic State propaganda, ISWAP is bragging about how they collect what they call zakat, right? So this is the, as you know, right, the, you know, the 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 third pillar of Islam, one of the, you know, the the mandatory charity, right? They have, you know, from 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 a mainstream Islamic standpoint, they have no business, you know, claiming to be fighting in the name of Islam or or to be collecting zakat, but th they want to kind of, you know, say that they're fulfilling this this quasi-state function by by collecting a tax. Um, but then they don't quite, quite, you know, at least they seldom seem to like plant the flag, as you say. Um, and especially they don't want to do it, I think, in a big urban area. Would you say, I mean, <laughs> this is kind of kind of a strange question to ask about somebody like this, but does uh, Abu Bakr Shakao have... Um, a legacy. Um, I, I feel like, you know, there are there are elements, and I, I mean, as I said, sort of the the earlier in the show, like there is this sort of uh, old school kind of layer or generation of leaders, and and some of them do. I mean, Bin Laden has a, has a legacy. Uh, Zarqawi, for better or worse, has a legacy. Um, you know, a, a Drukdel arguably will have a legacy, but Shakal seems. I don't know. I feel like he may be a little more ephemeral, but but maybe you you disagree, and he's gonna. You, there's a kind of lasting, uh, kind of thing that's gonna resonate from from his career. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I can I think I can see why you would say that he's that he's ephemeral. I mean, because he had this sort of rise and fall. Um, you know, I was gonna say earlier. I mean, another recurring question about Boko Haram, about Iswap, etc., has been. What's the degree of organizational cohesion? I mean, a, a colleague of mine, um, Olivier Walther, down at the at the University of Florida, has has you know looked in a careful way at sort of Boko Haram attacks and and has you know done um, complicated calculations that I don't understand, but in any case, you know, came up with with a model that suggests that there could have been as many as like 50, 60 discrete units of Boko Haram. So there's you know, questions about the centralization of the movement. Um, is Shakao more sort of a symbol of some of the violence than, than necessarily the person directly like ordering all these attacks? Um, I think, you know, he reminds me most of the Algerian armed Islamic group from the 1990s, you know, a group that was like similarly uh, aggressive and sweeping and calling ordinary Muslim civilians infidels and apostates and unbelievers. And those the the GIA in Algeria is held up even by a lot of other jihadists as an example of what not to do. Um, but I don't know that Shakao will leave an even will leave even that kind of mark on the global jihadist milieu. I mean, I think even for a lot of global jihadists, Africa, Nigeria, et cetera, are seen as as peripheral. But that could be one legacy is is actually as a as a cautionary tale. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. You know, I, I think. I mean, I think that's a good word to use, ephemeral. It's kind of funny to like apply to somebody who, you know, was was public enemy number one almost for 12 years in, in northeastern Nigeria. But then, yeah, aside from, you know, that phase of territorial conquest, conquest in 2014, 2015, he doesn't really have any like quote unquote accomplishments other than just tenacity and a few major attacks. I even, I mean, maybe there's something to like these, the guys who, actually 
try to attain a, a, a territory and then lose it. Like, I, I feel mm-hmm. like uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is not going to have, like his his kind of memory is not, and he, you know, is not going to last the way that like a bin Laden uh, did. I, I feel like he's going to be a little ephemeral as well. And, you know, he uh, went all the way up to, you know, claiming to be a caliph, which right. is, you know, sort of the, the supreme, uh, you know, kind of, kind of end point here. But I, I really feel like, you know, he had his run and it all fell apart and then he kind of died in relative obscurity. Um, I don't know if he's going to have like a, the same kind of future resonance, but, but I, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. I mean, one thing I was going to say earlier actually is that chronologically, I think we could definitely say like, as you were saying that, that, um, that Shakal was part of this like second generation of jihadists. I mean, just chronologically, right. You have, you have, Bin Laden and and Zawahiri born in the 50s, you know, even Abdullah Azam, right, born born in the 40s, this kind of like older generation. Um, and then you have these fighters born in, in the in the 70s, right? So let's put Shakal in the 70s. So that would put him in the same generation as like Jukdel and Bel Mukhtar and, and others. Um, you know, by the time he died, sort of an old man in, in jihadist terms. I think in another sense, like in an organizational sense, one could put him actually as part of like a third generation that in terms of just like the weakness of his own personal ties to, to Al-Qaeda core or to the sort of Afghan experience. I mean, some of the other leaders of, of Al-Qaeda affiliates had spent time in, you know, in, in Afghanistan and had, had met bin Laden or at least people close to bin Laden personally. I mean, you know, Belmokhtar had, had fought in Afghanistan, Drukdel had interacted directly with Sarkawi, had interacted with Zawahiri and bin Laden and so forth. Shakao, you know, he sent a letter to bin Laden, pretty, pretty abstract, you know, and so then you think about, you know, the, the people who might be now, even people born in the 90s succeeding Shakao, who have no connection to those, like, you know, to the, to the 80s in Afghanistan have, you know, their, their sort of interpersonal ties to bin Laden are probably, you know, three or four degrees of separation. Um, and I wonder what that means for the future of the global jihadist movement. There's this shared ideology, but not necessarily this kind of shared experience any longer let's talk for a um, few minutes here about nigeria kind of bigger picture um moving out of of the northeast region um you you wrote in your piece about the death which was just like a day or two after the reports of shakao's death surfaced uh, of the the chief of the the chief of staff of the Nigerian army, um, accidental. I mean, you know, died in a plane crash. But it sort of uh, speaks to uh, the kind of as you suggest, kind of the the failure of uh, the Nigerian government's efforts to get the country's security situation under control. And in in many in some respects. Uh, you know, continues to get worse. You talked about the earlier the bandit attacks in the Northwest, mm. which only seem to be increasing in frequency. Uh, there's still the problem kind of across the central band of the country of interactions, violent interactions between farming and herding communities. Um, and now, you know, recently there's been an uptick in violence in the Southeast, probably uh, among kind of a resurgent Biafran separatist mm. movement. Um, how would you characterize uh, the the overall security situation in Nigeria right now? Yeah, and to your to your list, I would add I would add kidnappings and armed robberies. I mean, some some of them, you know, mass kidnappings, mass kidnappings at schools. You know, maybe maybe you know, borrowing a page from from Boko Haram's uh, playbook, and there have been you know instances where where Boko Haram you know, some of these more recent kidnappings were attributed to them or were sort of copycat things. And yeah, I mean, it's really, really grim. I mean, you know, multiple conflict zones and then a lot of just, you know, insecurity affecting ordinary people and and the wealthy shield themselves to some extent with private security and with, you know, air travel instead of ground travel. But there's still, you know, even even the, the upper echelons of the Nigerian elite can be affected by kidnapping and robbery and so forth. Um, so I think the situation is, is very bad and and getting worse. And Mohamed Buhari, the president of the country, was on Twitter, I want to say today, with a thread 
It was basically bluster. You know, it, it concluded by saying something about his experience in the civil war, Nigeria's like official civil war in the late 60s and saying sort of those of us, you know, the, some of the, the you know, people, I think he said, who were misbehaving today, you know, uh, may not, you know, they were born after the civil war. And so they may not know, you know, uh, how it was, uh, but we're going to sort of deal with them the way that the way that we know how to deal with, you know, uh, sort of troublemakers, but but behind all this bluster, <laughs> what has he done to deal with any troublemakers? Like what does exactly. that mean? Like <laughs> exactly, yeah. And and in fact, let me read the quote if if, if you don't mind. I mean, so he yeah, he's sure. Saying many of those misbehaving today are too young to be aware of the destruction and loss of lives that occurred during the Nigerian Civil War, 1967 to 70. Those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war will treat them in the language they understand. Um, but as you say, right, this is like bluster because in, in the, you know, the, the point in the thread before that is the only place where he mentions some concrete action that he had taken, which is this reshuffle of the, of the service chiefs, including the chief of army staff back, I think in January. And so, you know, a personnel change ultimately fairly cosmetic and, you know, now, especially that the, that the chief of army staff died in this helicopter crash, you know, some of the eulogies have really praised him. I've seen him as, you know, more active as even kind of a, a truth teller. You know, he had been uh, raising questions about security expenditures. He had been visiting the front lines and so forth. But ultimately, to me, you know, the, the personnel change has not been backed up by any sort of serious policy changes. And so I think that, yeah, I think that the president seems um, out of touch and, and defensive and also lacking in, in ideas. As you uh, you know, as you mentioned with the with the question of of jihadists in rural areas, uh, this is not easy. It's not like there's you know it's not like there's easy off the shelf ideas um, waiting for him. But I think it is striking how uh, how much he's defaulted to sort of tough guy rhetoric and and sort of muddling through. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you know the 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 banditry seems like a real challenge and, and you know I, I you know including sort of the these mass kidnappings because a lot of those have been attributed to uh, just sort of unnamed bandit groups and it feels right. like you know nigerian the nigerian authorities don't even really know who's doing this stuff you know let alone having a plan to sort of do anything about it other than uh, you know, what I think probably through state governments, almost surely they're paying ransoms to these groups to get these people back. And that's the only kind of policy that that is being followed right now. But it feels yeah. like, you know, a lot some of these attacks, these big, you know, mass kidnappings at schools, that takes a certain level of planning that suggests an organization rather than just some like ad hoc gang of people rolling in on, uh, you know, motorcycles or whatever trucks and like, you know, doing an operation. Uh, but they, there really seems to be no idea uh, who's, who's involved or what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is serious organized crime. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for more evidence before I would say, oh, there's a big ISWAP role in this, or there's a big Ansaru role in this, but it, it seems to me that, you know, the, the capacity for organized crime is there without, without even any jihadist support. I mean, as you say, you know, to kidnap basically an entire school, this takes a degree of, capacity and and muscle that speaks to serious organizations and and in i mean i don't want to say in like defense of buhari but like to put buhari in context a lot of the state governors in in you know the northwest and the northeast and elsewhere seem similarly flummoxed by the situation i'm not sure they have a ton of good ideas i mean the the main sort of idea that has been put on the table that i've seen is to create regional security forces so basically groups of states clustering together to set up their own security forces um but and and for context there's the nigerian police forces is a national police force there's not state level police forces but those the idea of regional forces on the one hand they might not amount to much on the other hand if they do there's a concern about them taking on kind of an ethnic character or you know really um targeting perceived outsiders or, or just being sort of more fuel on the fire of conflict rather than being a, a real solution. Yeah. I mean, this, this is something you talked about before the, the sort of the effect that kind of overreaching by the national security forces has on kind of fueling 
uh, recruitment and driving people into the the like arms of uh, groups like Boko Haram and and the idea of doing this at a regional or, or state level just seems like you're creating a lot more opportunity for sort of paramilitaries yeah. you know to just yeah. go out and like uh you know wreak havoc in the countryside to try and kind of uh ostensibly to target these banded groups but again if you don't even know kind of what these organizations are you're going to wind up you know with a lot of a lot of people you know using this as an excuse to kind of uh, you know, work out some some communal tensions or, or things like that that, are, that could really uh, backfire, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and I mean, I should say somehow you, what you were saying reminded me too, just to like emphasize the, the level of conspiracy theorizing in the country, you know, and I think I don't really blame people for that because I think it's a product of frustration with the situation. You know, people wonder how could how could there be these these sophisticated bandit organizations? How, how could Boko Haram last for you know, now uh, a dozen years as a, as a completely violent outfit. Um, how could all that happen without some degree of like state support? And I think there are answers to that question, but I think it's also natural for people to start to, to resort to conspiracy theory as a means of explaining this really grim and bad situation. Um, I would, I, I would be remiss. We're going to move out of Nigeria altogether now, but uh, I feel like I, I should ask you about, um, you know, your, your assessment of what's happening in Mali um, you know, late last month, the coup government <laughs> carried out a self coup, basically overthrew the, <laughs> uh, the the transition. Right? I mean, they, they had this transitional government that was like notionally civilian, but only it kind of you know it seemed like window dressing. Uh, and we, we should say, you know, there was a coup in Mali in August that overthrew the civilian government, uh, you know, sort of under some pressure from the region and internationally, they put in place a sort of civilian run transitional government that was supposed to lead uh, a transition back to full civilian rule. Um, but last month, you know, there was a, a cabinet reshuffle and apparently the, the military felt like it wasn't uh, consulted on the cabinet reshuffle. And uh, so it cooed itself, basically. I mean, the, the government, you know, kind of uh, the junta cooed itself and and now uh, has done away, I think it seems like with any pretense of, of civilian oversight. And uh, Asimi Goita, the, the leader of the coup back in August, and again, last month has, has just been appointed as the interim president. Um, what do you make of, of what's happened over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've been sort of struggling to have to have a take. I mean, what what can one say? I mean, it's really, <laughs> you know, you, you laid it all out in your in your summary. And I think it's yeah, it's really it's really grim. I mean, even before this coup, people were worried about, you know, Malians, observers and so forth were worried about uh, what the transition was going to look like. And, and you know, there's supposed to be elections in 2022 and so forth. Concern that, you know, basically the cycle of of 2012 to 2020 politics would repeat itself, that the next civilian president will be a member of the familiar political class, that, you know, then they will, partly because of structural problems, partly because of whatever their personal failings may be, that they'll set the stage for another coup and that Mali will just remain trapped in that pattern. And then you get this coup in the midst of that, um, which almost seems to be a, an acceleration and, and speaks to, you know, the, the blatant appetite of, of this particular you know, clash of kernels to, to, to wield power. And so that raises questions if they're not willing to give up, if they're not willing to even sort of share power within a cabinet on the transition that they manage, then are they going to really step aside in 2022? Or are they going to, you know, is, is Goita or, or one of the others, you know, going to run for election, maybe even in, in, you know, contradiction to some of the provisions in the transitional charter. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, a lot of a lot of people have been, you know, saying, okay, this benefits jihadists and so forth. But uh, maybe, but I also think that, you know, it's just a really, really bad sign about the the political trajectory of the country. And and a lot of you know analysts have also made the point that there's always a critical mass of civilian politicians who will line up to to back any coup because they see the possibility of their own personal or their party's you know corporate gain as as part of each each round of coups. And then I think the international recognition has been relatively tepid. I mean, there's been stronger statements this time, but it, it looks as though, 
as long as, you know, Goita and, and the others appoint a civilian prime minister, it looks as though the coup will basically stand and that that sends precisely the wrong signal. So no, I, I think Malian politics are getting really stuck in a kind of dead end and it's it's hard to see how how 2022 is going to bring something better. I've I've gotten the sense like you know the the reaction from ECOWAS the the regional West African uh, organization uh, which was really I mean I thought in August you know they weren't like they didn't put a lot of pressure but they did put some pressure uh, on the coup government to at least kind of put together a a, a transition that could be. Uh, called civilian or at least partially kind of you know civilian uh, i it feels like there's almost a level of exhaustion yes this time and it's just like yeah okay whatever whatever you want to do <laughs> we don't care anymore like we, we don't like this but okay go ahead and and i mean you've you've said you know many times before that that um the international community and and france you know which is sort of the the controlling uh, Western power in this region and the United States, which is, of course, involved everywhere at all times, um, you know, what what they want out of any West African government is stability above all. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's sort of they need the window dressing of democracy or, or of civilian governance, but uh, that's not really a priority. What the priority is kind of the illusion, at least, of stability, if not the actual uh, enactment of some kind of stability. Um, is that the sense that you get that they're sort of like, okay, we don't, we don't care anymore. Just don't, you know, as long as nothing goes completely off the rails, uh, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was saying, you know, in a, in a different setting earlier today that it's become a kind of chicken and egg issue and that, you know, France says that they're, they're conducting counterterrorism basically so that they can stabilize politics. But then increasingly, it seems to be the inverse that they want there to be, you know, they want to they want to patch over any political disruption so that counterterrorism can continue. And so it, yeah, it raises this question of like, well, what, you know, what's what's really the the goal here? There, there doesn't seem to be much of a floor. I mean, the floor seems to be that, you know, a, a straight up junior officer who seizes power, like it was a captain in 2012 who seized power, you know, that that's not going to be tolerated. But that, you know, these guys are colonels, they're professional you know, they, I think they they have a sense of where the balance lies in terms of how, you know, basically how much civilian window dressing do they have to put on to have the coup stand. And and now, yeah, ironically, the statements have gotten tougher from ECOWAS, from France, et cetera, but the, the actual demands seem to be getting lower. And yeah, I think it speaks to that kind of exhaustion that you mentioned. Um, and then there's the question about 2022. I mean, I think now part of the reason why people are like, well, okay, do what you want is because there's this, this, you know, on paper, the idea that the transition is going forward, but yeah, we'll see, see what happens. It's only a it's, year. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's having now gone to the trouble of doing this twice. I, it's <laughs> hard to imagine uh, whatever the transition looks like that it's actually going to, going to be done in a way that even remotely risks the military losing any power. I mean, it's probably, you know, uh, and there, there are examples of this that have happened in, uh, you know, the one I think I, I we talked about after the coup in August uh, was the example of Thailand, which, you know, had a military coup sort of transitioned back to civilian government, but it was rigged in such a way that the military can't possibly uh, kind of lose power. I mean, the, the, the whole system is kind of, uh, you know, pitched so that the military retains power even under kind of a, 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 the guise of civilian governments. That, that, that That's probably what's going to happen. Uh, in Myanmar, assuming, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of challenges ahead <laughs> there in terms of, uh, you know, rebel groups and, and resistance to the junta. But I, I, if the transition there goes, uh, I think the way the military wants, it, it'll probably be the same thing. It'll be like a, a sort of nominally civilian government in which the military, you know, has all the levers of power and can't, you know, can't possibly be challenged. It feels like, that's the outcome here, especially after this second coup. I mean, you, you know, you've done it twice now. Uh, how willing are you really going to be to have a, a real transition back to a civilian rule? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting comparison. I mean, I think, 
and I don't, yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know, I don't know Myanmar and Thailand at all, but I, I yeah, something a lot for me to think about there. I think- yeah, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's, there's this sort of, it's either you, you have vetoes in every, everywhere, or you have kind of nominally civilian, uh, you know, you have the, the leader of the junta kind of making a big show of retiring from the military, but then, you know, becoming president or prime That's minister or whatever. Model. And, and, you know, I mean, that Goethe is probably going to be the next president. I, I can't imagine that he would, uh, you know, give that up now. So he'll, uh, you know, pretend, you know, sort of fake resign from the military, but, but hang on to power. And, and you know, I mean, there, you know, this mechanisms in the way the legislature is formed that the military gets to a point just enough uh, mm-hmm. members of the legislature maybe that that it has a veto over any government and uh you know that 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 seems to be the sort of pattern here and and i don't know i mean I, obviously there's a long way to go for for molly but it feels like that's where where it's going to wind up with with kind of a military veto over everything yeah and i think i mean one thing your question makes or your, your comments make me think about is is that um you know, I think that makes this actor, this group of actors actually different from earlier military coups in Mali, because, you know, in 1991, you had a coup. These guys were way too young. I mean, these guys were, you know, children when when that happened. Um, the leader of that coup left power, you know, after a short transition, but then came back as a civilian president from 2002 to 2012. And he was actually, you know, cooed out. And then the 2012 coup makers, right, this captain, Sonogo, you know, he was, he was, you know, given more or less kind of a, a slap on the wrist, but he was he was blocked from power. This current crop of officers, they would have been in their you know late twenties at that time. So that you know, I think at least one of them participated in the coup in sort of a secondary role. But yeah, it's really sort of now it seems to be that the, that the military is kind of claiming, or at least this section of the military claiming sort of like a, a what what looks to be a long term role for themselves in politics. Um, and that's 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 bad, I would say. Yeah, it's. I mean, it just seems like a lot of effort to invest, only to give it up later on. Like uh, one coup, I could maybe see, but but having done it twice, I, I think right. you're committed. You're committed now to holding out of power. Right. Uh, right. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll have to see what what happens there, and obviously. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure we'll have a reason to do this again. Uh, we Another quiet year and yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex, again, uh, thanks for for coming on the program. And um, uh, other, I mean, is there is there anything uh, apart from the books and and lawfare? Any anything you would like to uh, kind of direct people to? No, I don't. I don't okay. think so. Yeah, and you're obviously your your foreign exchanges column, which uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I was thinking know, about mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll, we'll definitely. Uh, uh, I have no problem plugging that, obviously. Uh, so yeah, people should uh, check out the books. Uh, check out uh, your whole backlog. I mean, you've got an author page on FX now, so people can <laughs> see all your all your past podcast experience, podcast visits and uh, your columns. So uh, yeah, Alex, you know, somebody, if you're interested in uh, what's going on in the Sahel, if you're interested in kind of political Islam, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, I obviously uh, can't recommend, uh, can't recommend your stuff enough. So people should definitely check it out. And thank you again for having me. Yeah. It's always good to come on. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Okay, you too. Before we go, I want to mention uh, that Alex and I recorded this interview on Tuesday, June 1st. Um, a few hours after we finished recording, uh, stories broke that the African Union uh, had suspended Mali's membership uh, in the AU over the second coup or the coup within a coup or whatever you want to call it, uh, and that it's considering, the members are considering additional sanctions, uh, which may in, indeed uh, spark a sort of domino effect. ECOWAS has, has talked about imposing sanctions. They haven't done anything yet. Uh, But now that the African Union has taken the first step, you may see uh, more uh, kind of stepped up regional response. You may even see some movement from France or the United States. It's unclear at this point. But uh, the upshot is uh, I may have spoken too soon when I said uh, to Alex that it, it felt like the response to this 
second coup regionally and internationally was sort of one born out of exhaustion more than anything else and that there didn't seem to be much willingness to do anything in response other than to kind of say okay you know whatever uh, it appears that I spoke too soon uh, and the African Union has now actually taken some steps or one step at least uh, and there may be more to come so I wanted to, to mention that before we close um, and uh, yeah with that I just want to thank Alex again for coming on the program uh, always great to have him on to talk about this stuff and uh, please check out his books again I'll have links in the show description check out his lawfare uh, piece check out his foreign exchanges columns uh, all of the above um, As and as always to you it's great to have you here thank you for listening and until next time take care and I'll talk to you soon bye bye